0: Hello and welcome to our new show, Mibby's Eye. This show will be broadcast once a month on Independence Live's YouTube channel and there will also be a podcast version which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Fiona McGregor and with my co-host Marlene Halliday in this first episode, we'll be looking at the topic of a Green New Deal for Scotland and we'll be having a chat about presentation that Dr. Craig D. L. from Commonweal gave to Yes Glasgow Southside. So I hope you enjoy it and if you're still in the process of making up your mind about Scottish independence, I hope you find this useful.
1: Welcome everyone, I'm Marlene Halliday. I'm here with my colleague Fiona McGregor and we're really pleased to be uh, starting off a new series for Independence Live Media. The series is called Maybe's Eye. Fiona, how did we come up with that title?
0: Well, we came up with that title because we wanted to have something for people who weren't diehard yeses or die-hard noes, but those undecided people in the middle, the Mibbies. We know there's a lot of good material out there. So what we wanted to do was bring you some of it. And hopefully you can either watch it yourself if you're interested in the topic or maybe share it with an undecided friend. That's the idea behind
1: the show. Great. And um, I mean, those of you who, who have been regular listeners to Inde Live Radio, you'll, you'll maybe have come across a series there called Yes Group Spotlight. And there was another series called Changing Minds. So in a way, this program on Independence Live Media, it's a bit of an evolution of those two programs. Those of you who have listened to those will also know we've we've taken we've taken material from meetings that have organized by the Yes Movement over you know the last well two years while the COVID pandemic has been keeping us all at home. And today we're going to kick off this new series with a meeting that was organized by Yes Glasgow Southside. They invited Craig Dell of Conwell Think Tank to speak to them and the theme of the meeting is the Green New Deal for Scotland.
0: The format to this is a presentation from Craig and then we'll come back in and have a wee chat and then there's a yeah. Q&A session as well. So we'll see you after the presentation and here's Craig Deal.
2: Right, so I was invited here to talk about what Scotland has to do to deal with the climate emergency that we're currently experiencing. Uh, I'm going to be referring to the book that we produced in 2019, our Common Home Plan, which is a a 25-year plan to not just create a net zero Scotland, but to create a Scotland that averts not just the climate emergency, but fixes a lot of other social and economic problems that we have in this country. Uh, I will talk about what we can do now, within the limits of devolution, because there's no excuse from starting this process, but I will show you also where we go beyond what the current devolution settlement allows us. Essentially, if we want to complete this Green New Deal plan and we want to do it uh, faster than Boris Johnson will let us do it, then either Scotland needs more powers or we need all the powers. So, a bit of background. I won't go through the entire history of the the climate climate change and the environmental movement, but I will pick up from 2018 when the IPCC produced its uh, report saying that there was no more time for debate and delay and we had to limit global warming to below 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. We're currently at about 1 to 1.1 degrees C. Above that limit, the damage to the planet starts to become catastrophic. The damage to human civilization, our economy and our, our society becomes catastrophic. If we want to meet that goal, then we must begin serious efforts to decarbonize within 12 years of that report in 2018. In 2021, the IPCC came back and said, "Right, world, you delayed more. Now things are worse." The most disturbing conclusion of that interim report, the report in 2021, was that keeping the planet below one point five degrees is now basically impossible. The best we can hope for is a short overshoot sometime between 2030 and 2050, with temperatures coming back down below one point five before 2100. One thing that the IPCC said was that every fraction of a degree matters. 1.5 is better than 1.6, 1.6 less worse than 1.7. Every fraction of a degree matters. We've seen with the the, the COP26 programme this year that the promises we're getting out of that are still insufficient. Some people are talking about the success of the new measures that have come out of COP. But what they've actually what's actually been said is that every single promise made at COP 26 is actually implemented. And we know how good politicians are at actually implementing their promises. Then the world ends up, ends up at plus two point four degrees, way above the upper limit of the Paris Accord. So we need to do better. We need to do more, and we need to do it faster. It's also important to say a lot of countries are now talking about net zero, even Scotland. the Scottish government's talking about a net zero Scotland, not a Green New Deal. Net zero means a decarbonised economy, but it's possible to do this badly. Incidentally, net zero by 2045 also means Scotland will continue to do damage to the planet until 2045, but we're ma- making no promises about fixing that damage afterwards, still a very limited promise. But if we go for that, if we go for that net zero future, and all we focus on is decarbonisation, then we're still going to hit problems. For example, if we exchange every petrol and diesel car for an electric car without changing transport policy, it means a lot of people who can't afford to buy these more expensive electric cars can't travel. And those who can still enjoy a traffic jam in their morning commute. Decarbonising our heating system badly might lead to fewer carbon emissions, but it could increase fuel poverty in Scotland. And if all we focus on, on is carbon emissions, then we're not fixing other problems like plastic waste or soil degradation, resource depletion, particularly air pollution, and other issues that are facing us. So net zero is not a Green New Deal, we need to be more ambitious. We're also well past the point of just saying we have targets. The Scottish Government are we have the most ambitious targets of, of any country in the world. And that might be true, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't meet them. The Scottish Government have been consistently failing on that. No country is doing this properly. This is something that Greta Thunberg was quite prominent in saying. There's no country whose current targets and current roadmap towards those targets are sufficient. If we're saying we should be carbon neutral by 2045 then that means nothing, again, if your plan is to do nothing until after the 2041 elections before even thinking about starting the, the, the solution. By that time, it's far too late. So we need not a target now. We know what the target is. We need a roadmap. How are we going to get to, from where we are today, to that target in time? So 2019 Commonwealth published our, our overall blueprint for what a Green New Deal would look like and all the actions that it contained within it. In 2020... We produced that roadmap, what we need to do year by year to get to that target in time. We did it as part of a a project we called Resilient Scotland because we married it with our responses to the COVID pandemic. One of the reasons that the, the COVID pandemic has hit Scotland so badly is that we simply weren't prepared for this kind of thing as well as we could be. So a truly resilient Scotland will be prepared for any future emergencies and we'll be able to respond to them, and maybe even be able to prevent them. So, very, very quickly, what we are wanting to see is in this current parliament, 2021 to uh, 2026, we need to start building everything within the Green New Deal that we possibly can build, use the powers of devolution to the absolute limit. Anything that we can't do, we should be mapping, we should be preparing for, everything that we can't do should be taken to a point that is as close to shovel-ready as possible, so that the moment that we are able to start building those projects, we can start it. We don't need to then launch another public consultation and have two or three years of arguing about what we should do. We can just get on and start. So within this parliament, we need to build the foundations of a Green New Deal. We need to be thinking about quite complex, sometimes a little bit boring, but very important things like changing public procurement contracts so that our supply chains are more resilient and so that we can build up our domestic uh, industries for example it's, it's well known now that, that while Scotland has a vast capability of building wind turbines we don't have the, the ability to make them to anywhere near the scale that we need to. The same is also true when, when I talk about later about retrofitting houses we don't produce anywhere near enough of the insulation that we will need for retrofitting all our houses whether we do that based on, on wood-based cellulose sheep wool or hemp based insulation. We don't produce any anywhere near enough of any of that. We need to be thinking about a retraining agency because the, the plumbers and builders and joiners that we will need to do that retrofitting work in five years time don't exist yet. So they need training now. We need to start thinking about other jobs that will come on stream as part of the Green New Deal and as part of the just transition that is often talked about so that we can start moving people into these jobs. Ultimately, a uh, successful Scottish foundation, the Green New Deal, will make not just our economy resilient, but also a democracy and society as well. It'll be more decentralised. It'll be certainly more definancialized. We won't be at the mercy of, of either large, large banks and financial institutions funding this, but also at the mercy of them not funding it and pulling out and causing a crisis. We need to democratise our economy. Uh, Some of the work that's been done by things like the the Scottish Citizens Assembly and the Scottish Climate Assembly have been wonderful and far more radical than than any Commonweal in some respects. But they need to have a a stronger footing in our democracy so that their ideas are listened to and enacted. And we've also seen problems with industrial lobbying, for instance. We've, We've seen it at a UK level, but it's particularly bad at a Scottish level as well. That revolving door between the private sector and the civil service that allows policy to be corrupted and subverted to suit the big businesses that can get, go through that revolving door, and certainly not for the benefit of those who are locked outside. So as I say, that's that's really the, 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 the grounding of what we should be doing right now over the next five years, is building those foundations. Whenever you hear someone say, well, we don't have the powers to do some parts of the Green New Deal, so we shouldn't do any of it until after independence, that's simply not true. The plan is going to take us 25 years, and that's ever more reason to do what we can now. Our challenge for Scotland, our goal for Scotland, is that if we start now and we really push this plan, then over the next couple of years, 2024, maybe up to the end of this parliament, we should have the Green New Deal already underway. We should be pushing up to those limits of devolution. Everything else should be shovel ready. And we should be able to go to the, the people of Scotland and say, right, this is as much as we can do with the powers of devolution. If you want the rest of the Green New Deal, then we need independence. I think that in itself, in a nutshell, is a much more compelling case than just about anything we've put forward in any previous discussion about, about the foundation of an independence referendum certainly better than the endless arguments about should we even have a referendum or what form should it take. Because what we do then is go to the Scottish people and say, right, we have this Green New Deal. You can have it if you vote for independence. Or if you don't want independence, then we have to scrap that deal and everything, that, all the work that we've done up to that point and hand it over to whatever the other side of the campaign is wants to offer us. Assuming we do go for independence, then we spend the next 25 years building it. And I'll now go into exactly what that can that can look like in in certain areas. Let's look at some of these sectors. What changes in the electricity sector, for instance? Scotland right now is severely disadvantaged by the UK energy grid. It's not necessarily a conspiracy against Scottish renewables, although the fact that um, there have been calls to change it in the House of Commons in the past couple of weeks and they've been outright refused by the UK government, and you can start to think down that road a little more. But it was certainly a case that the UK energy grid was designed for a, a prior age. It was designed for the age of coal when you wanted to build your power stations close to, but not too close to your population centers, London and Southeast chiefly. And it was easy enough to move the fuel for those power stations by train. You can't do that in the renewable age. You have to build the generators where the resources are. But the impact of this is if right now you built a one megawatt wind generator in the middle of London, you would be paid a subsidy to connect it to the national grid of £4,500 a year. If you built that same turbine outside my house right now in South Lancashire, and there's a lot of wind turbines around this area, you would pay a tariff to the national grid of £10,500. This area, however, is largely reserved, so there's not much we can do about this at the moment. We then devolve Scotland and there's certainly no sign of it changing at a UK level. So this is something that we will have to wait until after independence. But there is stuff we can do. For instance, our powers over district heating networks is entirely devolved. Right now the Scottish Government is looking at transitioning the vast majority of the way we heat our homes from fossil fuels, largely gas and oil, to largely electric heating. Uh, mostly in the form of air source heat pumps. The downside of that is that that will put enormous strain on that electrical grid that the Scottish Government has no control over. So we can only build up that electric heating future as fast as essentially Boris Johnson will let us. At Commonweal, we're arguing that we should take the the same approach that Denmark has taken to building district heating networks whenever we can. What these allow us to do is generate that heat from... Any source of of energy that we can plug into that grid, that could be electric, could be renewable electricity, it could be hydrogen, could be biomass, could be solar, could be geothermal, could be whatever we like. These uh, systems are are agnostic to the the, the heat that goes into them. But this would allow us to decarbonise our heat faster, allow us to build the infrastructure to to make that future-proof. And by the way, they would also give you a better quality of heat than an air source heat pump or a hydrogen boiler. And in the Common Home Plan, we mapped out what Scotland's heat budget in 2045 could look like. We estimated that about half of our current heat budget could be could be eliminated through better insulation. That's a fairly conservative estimate. We could probably, probably push that a bit further. Much of the rest, we reckon Scotland could be heated by the sun. And I mean that: solar thermal panels are extremely efficient, even in Scotland. And if you build enough interseasonal heat storage. again along the same model that Denmark does, then we can use our long summer days to heat those stores and prepare for the winter when we need that heat back out. Geothermal is another big area that could be explored in Scotland, Um, especially in the central Belt where we have have a lot of flooded mines that that store a lot of heat And The big issue with this, though, is that we don't have the data on where these resources are and where the demand is. So we're currently pushing the Scottish government to start scoping out communities for how much energy will they need from a potential district heating system and where they could get it from. So you can imagine somewhere in the south of Scotland in the, in the middle of the borders getting a lot of that from onshore wind, for example. You can also imagine somewhere like Inverclyde putting a heat exchanger in the in the river and extracting heat from there. It's going to be very dependent on individual communities. So we've also taken this this, this call to local authorities to start to, to try and encourage them to start scoping out this. One of the biggest jobs in the Green New Deal is in housing. We'd still build crap houses in Scotland. The houses that are built, being built today do not meet the standards that we will need to, to meet our Green New Deal targets. I see it all the time, I've been having Quite vocal arguments with local authorities across, the Sc- across Scotland for giving planning permission uh, houses that just simply will not do. We could be building green new deal eco houses today, passive uh, thermal energy grade houses. There are some being built in Scotland, but nowhere near enough. I'm calling for every single house, every single building in Scotland, to be built to these passive grade standards. And that's just a legislative change. Scottish Government could do it today. Local authorities could decide today that the nationally set building standards are insufficient and they want to go above them. We could also be pushing the demand for the supply chain for these houses by building social houses, council houses at their standard, stimulating the the, the building sector, stimulating the training we need, the supplies we need to build these houses. And also putting people in need of housing into the best quality houses are, uh, possible so that we don't have any fuel poverty, have very low heating bills and aren't actually private sector rents. Of course, this doesn't solve the problem that around 80% of the buildings that currently exist in Scotland today will still be standing in 2045 and almost none of them are at Green New Deal quality. The biggest part of the Green New Deal plan will be the massive retrofitting job that Scotland needs. And again, we have not just a a chapter on this in our Green New Deal book, but we have a a dedicated paper on retrofitting in Scotland by one of Scotland's leading retrofitting architects uh, coming out possibly at the end of this year. Something to look out for. The problem with the strategy for retrofitting as we have it right now is it's putting a lot of the burden of that onto house owners and quite frankly it's that it's still a very patchy strategy if you can call it that at all the scottish government approach right now is that we have a two phase approach that all houses should be energy performance certificate level c by 2030 and then epc b by 2040 what this means is if you're in a d or an e class house you might have to retrofit up to c in the next few years only to tear out a good chunk of that retrofitting to do, do the job properly and get yourself up to B or A grade. What we should be doing is have a national survey of all buildings in Scotland, work out what their maximum economically feasible retrofit is, and set up a plan to come back and retrofit that house in one stage, up to that maximum. It's a national-level strategy. It's probably going to go community by community, street by street, rather than just waiting for individual house owners to somehow find the money to put together a plan for themselves. One of the biggest sources of carbon emissions in Scotland is farming. And it's not just carbon emissions, it's also other pollutions like fertiliser runoff, soil degradation, other negative impacts, biodiversity impacts we're having on the planet. Again, the difference between a net zero and a green new deal. Scotland could be pioneering techniques such as permaculture, or even an indoor farming to produce food in a sustainable way. We could also be trying to, to increase demand for locally produced food, so that we're not airdropping fresh fruit in from halfway around the world and creating a lot of carbon emissions by, by flying food thousands of miles. We need a national, national plan to train our farmers in, in new agricultural methods to, to meet these sustainable goals. We're already starting to slip behind other countries. France has just announced that it wants 50% of its farming to be done on agroecology principles um, by 2035, I think. This kind of thing can't be done without massive land reform, and that's another (laughs) topic for an entirely other day. But again, it's something that is almost entirely within the the power of Scotland to to do. Scotland's one of the most monopoly-owned countries in the world, famous status than and 450 people own half of Scotland's land. So we need massive structural land reform in order to do any of this. 25% of Scotland's energy needs, uh, energy demand goes into transport, and transport's another major source of emissions at the moment. I don't know if you remember the early days of the, the first COVID lockdown last year. I certainly do. I, re- I remember going outside the house with my wife and... There was a strange feeling in the air, and it took us a second to realise we can't hear any traffic from the motorway. That first lockdown caused something like a 20 per cent drop in transport across Scotland. That's the kind of scale of, of transport reduction we will need in a Green New Deal world. Never mind making things more efficient or electrifying things, we need to actually reduce the amount of stuff that is moved around. We've seen a lot of people, myself included, start to work from home rather than commuting every day. That probably needs to increase. We probably need to think think about provision for people who can work remotely, but because of the home environment, can't necessarily work from home. So that means more in the way of remote offices embedded in communities. For the transport that still takes place, we're going to electrify most of the smaller vehicles. Essentially, anything smaller than a van um, is, is more efficient to, to power with electricity. Anything bigger than a van, to hydrogen for its, uh, its power. One thing that we weren't sure about in 2019 when we wrote the Green New Deal plan, how much automation will affect the transport sector because we really don't know what, this, what the state of that technology will be. It might be a, a complete boondoggle and it's just to say this doesn't work adequately, Nobody or, or nobody trusts it, nobody's going to trust themselves to a, a robot taxi. Or it might be that it, it works great and it's rolled out as quickly as possible and, and all the truck drivers lose their jobs as, as the robot robots take over that job. If that happens, then we need to kind of think about a relationship to private vehicles. It might be that we don't need to all own a couple of cars per household in order to do everything we want. If we have better public transport, if we have more active travel and we're not moving around commuting so much, maybe the journeys that we do need to take by car could be done by a robot taxi. Pull up an app on your phone, click a button, it arrives in a few minutes, takes you to where you want to go. Now, there's two futures we envisage there. The Utopian version is a free national public transport company that uh, just takes you where to go as a public service. The dystopian version, as we let the private companies get in, and you can be absolutely sure they will want to maximise the number of cars on the road because that will maximise their number of customers, so your traffic jam will still be there. You can also be assured that they will want to feed you as many adverts as they can while you're a passenger in that taxi. doesn't sound like the best solution to me. Again, there's a lot of things that Scotland can do right now that would help us prepare for this. Our fully nationalised public transport system, nationalise our buses, start to work towards a free public transport system. The, the, the stories of, of COP26 and handing out free transport passes to all the delegates, but only for COP and certainly not for any normal punter in Glasgow, certainly drew attention to the inequalities there. And I know that groups like Get, Get Glasgow Moving have been doing a power of work to, to show how a free public transport, national public transport network could work in that city and elsewhere. The most exciting and the most profound change in the Green New Deal for me is the, the the changes we need to make to the way we buy things. We cannot keep going with this consumerist economy that is based on buying and throwing away plastic crap. That's been much of the, 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 the major cause of the emissions that we've created in the world and the damage that we've caused, never mind the plastic waste and the other the other harmful effects of that, never mind the social impacts, the social harms of living in a world where your worth is based on how many adverts you consume and how many products you buy off the back of them. We need to buy less. We need to borrow more. So we need a circular economy. And our idea of a circular economy isn't one in which you buy things and then recycle them. It's far more complex than that. I to give you an entire talk on what that would look like. It starts with borrowing. It starts with tool libraries and a sharing economy, and this is something that the Scottish Climate Assembly pushed heavily, they want a tool library, a resource library in every community in Scotland. It'll be interesting in a couple of weeks when the Scottish Government publishes its formal response to that assembly to see if that point is one that they they accept and adopt. The tools that we do, the, the things that we do buy that we're not borrowing, have to be reusable. We can't have disposable plastic anymore. And it is good that we're moving in that direction. But it needs to be more than that again. The goods that we buy needs to be need to be designed from the start to be repairable. Ideally by the user, but certainly easily repairable without you know having to chuck away entire products just because one widget within it has has broken. Once a, a thing stops being repairable, it should be remanufacturable. You should be able to take it, take it apart, reduce it to its constituent components, and use the components in there that are still good in new products. You shouldn't throw away an entire laptop just because the hard drive's broken, for instance. Anything that does reach genuine end of life should be compostable, if possible, either in a home uh, garden compost heap or in a community bioreactor. It's only at this point do we we then look at recycling what is left, and those recycled materials should go back into the circular economy from the start. One idea I've had to try and encourage this change is is a bit of legislation that says that all non-costable products, including packaging, should be returnable to the place where you bought them. Think about all the plastic crap that you have to unwrap after you bring your shopping home. Imagine sending that all back to the supermarket. How quickly would they move to compostable wraps? So that's just a very quick flavour of the Green New Deal. The one question that always comes up is how much is it going to cost and how much how will we pay for it? We've estimated that this, this entire plan would cost about £170 billion. It's a massive sum. Spent over 25 years. I want to make clear that the cost of doing nothing will be even greater than that. I've spoken to environmental officers and local authorities that have said that if we do nothing, then they expect their entire local authority budget to be consumed by flood defences, uh, never mind any, any other mitigation against the Green New Deal, and certainly never mind any service delivery beyond that. We're talking entire cities could go underwater by 2045, including in, in Scotland. Good chunks of Glasgow, most of Falkirk, are very low-lying. How do we pay for it? Well, I know there's someone someone out there going to start arguing with me about modern monetary theory, um, and I'm... I'm completely with you on a lot of that, but even if we go for the the conventional Keynesian approach to taxing and spending, then Scotland could borrow that £170 billion over the course of 25 years and pay back the bonds over 50 years. We've estimated that that would cost about £5 billion per year to service that debt. However, we've also estimated that the direct impact of all the job creation that happens from the Green New Deal would be worth about £4 billion a year. Add on another £2 billion from the revenue from things like the, the nationalised energy companies and the nationalised transport companies, and the Green New Deal would more than pay for itself. There would be other savings in terms of health benefits and uh, well-being benefits as well. So even if there was no climate emergency, even if there was no resource emergency or fertilizer emergency, soil degradation emergency, plastic waste emergency, even if none of those crises Existed, this Green New Deal would still be worth doing. In fact, not doing it is bad economics and bad politics. So that's just a very, very quick taste. So I, I, I really wish I could dive into it in a, in a lot more detail. If there's any, anything you want to explore uh, a wee bit more, please just ask me in the Q and A. We do have books on this. The, the the Green Book is the detailed version of the full plan. The Orange Books are slimmer. Slightly easier read, slightly more graphical version. You can get both of them on our website, either as e-book or in hard copy. We also have a few other books that I encourage you to get if you don't already have them. How to start a new country is the the practical guide to what happens the day after an independence referendum and leading up to Independence Day. All the things that we need to build to prepare to become a viable nation state. And I'd highly recommend the Atlas of Opportunity that we published a few years ago, a graphical coffee table book that really lets you see Scotland and you light, full of interesting maps of where our people are, where our resources are. And just finally, I know a lot of folk here have heard me say this bit uh, often enough, but Commonweal, as an organisation, we're entirely funded by folk like yourselves giving us a monthly donation. So if you like our policy work and you think it's valuable and you want to support it, and you're not already a, a supporter, then please come and join us and help us campaign.
0: That was Craig's presentation. And I don't know, Marlene, what you've picked out of that. The thing that really resonated with me, that scary figure that 1.5% is no longer possible, even right now, and the best we can hope for is that we won't overshoot it by that much before we start to bring things back into control. But every fraction of a degree really counts. You know, it, it's urgent. It really is urgent.
1: Thinking back to that uh, COP meeting in Paris, which is where you know they, they, there was obviously a very genuine um, commitment being made to to keep it to one point five degrees. I'm afraid even back then I heard that, and although I I was heartened at the um, you know, the the, the wish that was being expressed to do that, I I, I had my doubts that Mm. that would ever be possible because there's so much that's already in the pipeline already because things from the past are going to have consequences for us and the planet, and we can't alter those now. Of Mm. course, we can alter our behavior uh, our behaviour yeah. going forward but unfortunately we haven't altered our behaviour very much since that 1.5 degrees was first um, was first muted mm. uh, so I kind of vary a bit sometimes I'm more pessimistic about what the future is going to bring and, and sometimes I'm, I'm more optimistic but uh, I, I sat in I, w- I sat in this meeting with um well as it were online <laughs> sat in <laughs> with the meeting that when Craig was was speaking and um I asked him a question about um, how rising sea levels would affect Scotland, because although there's a lot of emphasis being given to, you know, especially the Pacific Islanders, and quite rightly, because they're facing losing their homes completely. Mm. um, But sometimes that's maybe just a bit remote from where we are here and, you know, sitting on the edge of Northern Europe. So I I asked him, I asked him, you know, did he have any ideas, any information about how it would affect Scotland? Craig, being Craig, immediately goes, "Yes, I have a map," <laughs> <laughs> and and it is kind of ironic that you know that one of the one of the first things that will go is Glasgow Airport, and um, all along the three, the, the you know the, the three big estuaries in Scotland, so the Clyde, the Forth, and the Tay, those are going to be inundated to to quite an extent in Barton, Helensburgh, mm-hmm. but not only places, also Good fertile farmland. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, it get even st- even farmland that isn't going to be inundated. The the water table rises, salt...
0: Even grazing land, if it's salty, yeah. is not going yeah. to be good. And you yeah. live on the Clyde, and I live in the Fourth Valley. So yeah. it's something that we've both got a vested interest in, in getting exactly. Right. So, exactly. Well, let's move on and, and watch that Q&A now, because your yeah. questions are in there. Yeah. And as we say, Craig is um, ready with a map to uh, illustrate his answer <laughs> at all times. So let's move on to that part now.
1: You said there was... 2 metres sea level rise already built in, and um, you mentioned Falkirk might disappear, but I just wondered if you could say a bit more about how that would actually affect Scotland, because, you know, it's easy to think, well, the South Pacific islands will disappear or Holland will go by, you know, by board, but it'd be good to kind of find out if you, if you know how that would affect us here in Scotland.
2: This is what Glasgow looks like at plus two metres. All those red areas go underwater. It's with a certain grim irony that one of the most vulnerable places to to, to climate change is Glasgow Airport. Also look at Dumbarton. A lot of people Mm live on the south side of Glasgow, especially. Also consider that if you were to overlay this with a map of deprivation in Glasgow, some of the places most vulnerable are some of the places that are most deprived. So again, it's not just on a global scale that the people least able to individually adapt to climate change are the ones that are most vulnerable to it. It's also worth noting that within that plus two meter sea level area is the constituency office of Nicholas Sturgeon. I found so far four Scottish politicians, MPs or MSPs, whose constituency offices are within that two meter red zone. Now. With the best will in the world, I don't think very many of them will still be politicians in 2100. But I think that should be a warning sign to them that the the danger is literally on their doorstep.
1: You sent them a copy of the map?
2: (laughs) I uh, was once at a a presentation, in the before times when these presentations were still in in person, and one of the politicians in question was in the room, and you saw their eyebrows (laughs) raise in horror when I got to that slide.
3: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that. I've got uh, a number of House Builder clients and uh, I had one of them who was being at some meeting with the House Builders Federation or whatever they're called in, civil servants, and he had his come back his shock and uh, horror that uh, the Scottish Government are pushing ahead with all this uh, legislation for upgrading insulation in homes etc. Not that he doesn't know it's, it's going to happen down the road but uh, he says that the issue they were highlighting was Scotland is at the forefront of these proposals when the technology, materials etc are going to be expensive and he was saying they should be waiting for the big countries to do all this and then they'll get all the materials and that a lot cheaper and they'll be able to keep their costs down and people will be able to afford the insulation of their own houses going forward etc. So not that I agree with them or, or that we should be waiting for this, but I just wonder what you, you might have to say about that.
2: Two points to make on that. One, insulation by definition is a low-density project product. That's how it works. It, um, and it's also a relatively low-value product. It's not like processed electronics. That means it's just about the worst possible thing to trade. It's the worst possible good that you can ship around the world because it's low density and it's low value. Um, So it takes a lot of space on a a container to move not much insulation. I know this because I've been in in the process of uh, uh, insulating my own loft and I I had to help unload the truck uh, with uh, the insulation for it. It took up a lot of space in that truck just for one Buildings worth of insulation. The second point is just this summer we had Scottish wool uh, sheep farmers burning their wool because the prices were so low it was not worth shipping it to market. Wool is an excellent insulator. Wool is a fantastic uh, material for, for insulating these houses. So we have a total market failure in that regard. But more broadly, this is this is part of the thing that we need to do around procurement and supply chains. The prices are high for a lot of these materials because demand is low, because nobody's building Green New Deal houses. If the Scottish Government turned around and said, Right, from next year, all social houses will be built to Green New Deal standards. So we'll need X, num- X amount of insulation. We will give a tax incentive to anyone who uses Scottish wool for that insulation. And we will also Provide a guaranteed price for wool farmers if they want to sell their wool to local authorities for the purposes of social house building. You've instantly created a massive amount of demand, probably that would outstrip supply for several years, and that would push that would keep prices up. So. It, this is possibly some something that doesn't work under the current economic system, but that's because the current economic system is fundamentally broken. So Again, the difference between a net zero and a Green New Deal is one that fixes both problems.
0: Bob's put a question in the chat. Um, most politicians will go only as far on the green issue as they need to. People power is part of showing them they need to do more. Other than the normal methods of drawing attention to issues, what more can we do to persuade more people of the need to push for change immediately?
2: I think a good way of doing it is to demonstrate the benefits of fixing the problem. One of the examples I often use is, put your hands up if you're spending more than £100 a month on your heating bill. A Green New Deal house would save you 90% of your heating costs. Would you prefer to live in a world where your heating bill was £10 a month? So, so if we can start pushing the benefits, I would love to sacrifice 90% of my heating bill for the sake of the planet. I already have sacrificed my morning commute and traffic jam for the sake of the planet. I'd love to be able to sacrifice the binfuls of plastic waste my consumerism generates every year for the sake of the planet. So maybe we can start thinking about both, uh, think about uh, framing our arguments better in, in that respect. I saw a great contest um, on the internet among people who already live in passive house grade eco houses, where they get people to turn their heating off in the middle of winter, off completely, and see how long it takes for them to put it back on again. And the winner was a guy in Norway who lasted over a week. (laughs) There are folk in Scotland who are cold even with their heating on. I, I, I would love to sacrifice everybody's crap house for an eco one for the sake of the planet.
1: Already had uh, Robin talking about you know an, an alliance of the willing, so mm. not waiting for Australia. Um, I just wondered, which countries do you think Scotland might you know hook up with as an alliance of the willing?
2: Mm. Uh, this idea of the coalition of the willing, this is this is saying, right, we can't wait for the slowest mover to take a step forward and then only go as fast as they can. We start pushing, we start innovating, and we start doing everything we can. We have to also remember that everybody's on the same, same time scale. So one of the possible solutions to the skills gap that Scotland would have is the idea, well, we'll just increase immigration, we'll get people over to do the work for us. The problem with that is... If we want to start importing thousands of Norwegian plumbers to build our district heating systems, we have to remember that Norway needs those plumbers as well to do their Green New Deal. We don't have enough skills in existence at the moment to do every Green New Deal on the same time scale. So we need to start learning from each other as well. So we need to start building ties with people who are going a bit further in specific areas. I mentioned Denmark as a country that Scotland really should be learning from. In terms of its district heating networks. I know the Scottish government's already started reaching out and signed a memorandum of understanding with the Danish Government to, to do that cooperation, that's great to see. Although I also see from the district heating network um, consultation that's about to close that there's still a big knowledge gap in the Scottish Government about what that change actually means. Extend that beyond heating, extend it to trade, extend it to agroecology, we start pulling in those skills start learning from each other, start pushing out our knowledge where we start where we, we start pushing ahead. But then you start building that coalition of the willing, where we start having preferential trade deals with countries that are already on board with the Green New Deal. Have not just a, a have carbon border taxes on trade or full uh, externality taxes as unknown well to to penalize goods that cause pollution, that cause damage to the planet. Anyone who is producing goods that we might want that is not damaging the planet, that is being grown on agroecology grounds or is otherwise, you know, fits into the circular economy well, they're not affected by the tax. So we start trading more with those countries. We start building those greater ties. And if anyone wants in, join us. You know what? You know what you need to do. You can start Perfect. leveraging that power. As, um, and that, that to me, is a much more proactive way of creating that international consensus than just sitting in a room and arguing over who scuppered the deal, the deal this year.
0: Bob saying, I had four people staying at my house during COP26, two Bolivian delegates and two young Italian interns at the European Parliament for the Green EPA group. The conversations are better than the People's Summit events I went to.
2: Yeah, very much a reflection of our, our experiences as well.
0: Do you think it will be possible to install district heating in all types of areas, e.g. remote rural
2: or historic town centres? The short version is, it is not just possible, to, but possibly advantageous to do it in many areas. I was reading a paper not a lot long ago looking at the examples of district heating around Europe. It's all, district heating is almost unknown in Scotland and in the UK. We haven't really done it much. It's almost ubiquitous in some parts of, of Europe. Um, It has been for a century or more. Um, And and what you find is, if you look at the economics of three technologies, so district heating networks where you generate the heat from some central source, call it a renewable wind turbine, and then you pipe the heat to a house. You have a gas network where you pipe the gas to a house and then you burn it on site in a boiler. And then you have an electric system where you transmit electricity to a house and you use that to heat the house. And the electricity might be generated by gas or renewables or whatever. The examples around Europe show that the cheapest way to heat a house out of those methods is district heating, assuming that you're within about 40 to 80 kilometres of the heat source, which is a huge distance when you think about it. Even the lower estimate of that would be the equivalent of using the whiteley or Kite Your wind turbine, wind farms, the big ones in the Central Belt, to, to generate heat for a, for a Glasgow, Glasgow, centre of Glasgow district heating system. It, the, the examples of district heating in the in, in Europe that are the longest main trunk cables reach out over a hundred kilometers. So at that length you can really see how you can generate heat for a community and pipe it out to even fairly remote houses. It's all, it all then just becomes the, the infrastructure costs of doing it. That said, remote rural is challenging. Remote rural is challenging for any technology, whether you're sending out electricity or whether you're sending out tankers of uh, bio But a lot of Scotland isn't so much remote rural as it is compact rural. If you think about, for example, the, uh, a village sitting out in the middle of nowhere in Scotland, I say nowhere, that's a bit disparaging. Everyone's Everywhere somewhere to someone. (laughs) Um, But a a remote village, itself quite compact, with plenty of land around it to generate the the heat for its its district heating system. But the district heating system itself being fairly small because it only needs to circulate a small village. As for the historic town centres, historic buildings in general are going to be challenging because um, we need to bring them up to Green New Deal energy efficiency as well. And... Especially um, protected buildings, listed buildings, could be very challenging in that respect. Um, it's, it's, there may need to be compromises on on the way we uh, what we what we consider to be acceptable modifications to a listed building. Something that Germany had has done. You see a lot of castles in Germany's in Germany with solar panels now. The alternative is to accept that some of these buildings will not meet passive energy efficiency standards. We can only take them up so far, and then we need to think about ways of, of making sure that the people who live in those houses get their heat demand met as cheaply as possible. But as for the, the historic town centres and the changes of them, well, we've done these changes before uh, already. The, the, the idea of putting a district heating network in terms of the the infrastructure and the disruption, Scotland has done twice within living memory or just beyond living memory. The first was the the rollout of of coal gas networks and then its replacement with natural gas in the the 60s and 70s. So it's another change on that kind of scale. Um, But it's one that we've done before so we can do it again. And if we do it properly, this is a cri- really critical thing if we do it properly and everything is sized appropriately and the data's all there, and we build things with a view to future proofing, then mm-hmm. once it's in, you can treat it almost like one of those historic Victorian sewers that's already that's still in use. Once these systems are in, they can last for decades and centuries so you if you do it right, you only need to do it once it, do
3: you, does anyone in common have any official meetings with the Scottish government at any stage?
2: We do engage a lot. We certainly do a lot of talking, a lot of talking with civil servants. So our energy team was meeting with um, civil servants in charge of of implementing the district heating system uh, policy, for instance, very recently. We're a non-party organisation, which also also allows us to speak to other uh, parties as well. So we've we've started to to, to build fairly good links with, with Scottish Greens and with the Scottish Labour Party as well. Um, who, are, who have been speaking out more about this so we do engage it, it, it's slow progress it really is infuriatingly slow progress especially when you know that on the other side of the door there are lobbyists arguing for exactly the, exactly the opposite and they have more money than you
0: Some very good questions there Marlene including yours <laughs> Could mine, yeah I hope you found that interesting and I hope you find it useful in discussions with undecided friends, perhaps. If you've got any meetings that you think would be really good for this series, then please get in touch and we'd love to hear from you.
1: And also, if you're you're just someone who is maybe thinking, I wouldn't mind going on Maybe's Eye with... Marlene and Fiona and, and having a wee chat after a meeting. That would be great actually. That would we, be you know, lovely. That would be mm-hmm. we're looking for people who'd be prepared to come on and do that. And you you don't have to agree with what we say. You don't even have to agree with what's in the particular uh meeting. Actually, if you want to come on and contribute, get in touch with us. Really appreciate that.
0: And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss any of our future shows. Please also share it with a friend if there's somebody you think would be interested and would enjoy it. Please share it. The more people we can reach, the better. Thanks for listening. Join us again next month when we'll be tackling the thorny subject of currency. That was episode one of Mibby's Eye from Independence Live Media Productions. The hosts were Fiona McGregor and Marlene Halliday and the music is inspired by Kevin MacLeod.